2 Corinthians 13, beginning in verse 11. This is what the word of God has to say. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. When children leave the house, walking out, maybe they're old enough to drive, maybe they're jumping on the school bus, maybe they're going off of friends, but when children leave the house without their parents, you often speak to them last words of instruction. Now, as they're walking out the door, that's not the time to give new information. It's not the time to tell them something they've never heard before. No, when they're walking out the door and you're, you're remember this kind of instructions, you're, what you're saying to them or reminding them of things that you've probably said a thousand times before. And so you're, you're trying to instill in them one more time final instructions, things that you want them to remember. Maybe a mom would shout something to her children that she, she needs them to remember to do before they return home. Maybe a father might say to his children, maybe something about, now, you behave yourself when you're away from me. Remember the way you've been raised and the expectations we have for you. Often parents tell their children one last time as they go, I love you. So those are the last words that they have spoken. In these concluding verses, these closing words of Paul to the Corinthian church, he speaks similar words, similar words of instruction. What, you, what we read this morning in verses 11 through 14 are nothing new. This is not new information. But he's articulating again, he's affirming again the big, general, important things for the church to remember. Now, if I could characterize the points this morning that I want to draw from this passage. It's two small ones and one really big one. A, a general word about your attitude, a really big word about what your focus attention ought to be, and then a supporting word about the hope, the joy, the sureness of salvation. And so here they are. Number one, you and I must carry on with the attitude of rejoicing. Regardless of circumstances, whether we're in a hurricane or in political uh, persecution, you and I, the attitude of believers, the attitude of Christians must continually be one of rejoicing. And I want you to hear this morning why. The big point out of this passage is that our aim, our goal, our purpose, everything we do must be focused on, aimed at, restoring, restoring to the word of God, restoring to, to right um, of obedience to the Lord and restoring to one another in right relationships. And then like 
parents speaking a word of love to their children walking out the door. It is a good word to end on, the blessing that Paul ends with, the blessing of the gospel, that you've been, you are under the grace of God, the recipients, the grace of Christ, the recipients of the love of God, and through his blood you have been brought into the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Let's begin with our proper attitude. Very first three words uh, in the text this morning where Paul writes these words, finally, brothers, rejoice. Rejoice, one word command. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Now, if you're familiar with the New Testament and maybe you're familiar with other letters that Paul had written, you'll know that he uses this word quite a bit. And so I would encourage you that when we think about having the attitude of rejoicing, the command there is, regardless of circumstances, regardless of the particulars of your experience right now, believers, those who've been bought by the blood of Jesus must rejoice always. You might say, well, wait a minute, what about what I'm going through right now? And the word would be, yes, rejoice always. Are you grieving? Rejoice always. Are you suffering? Rejoice always. Are you hurting? Rejoice always. Are you in conflict? Rejoice always. Are you under persecution? Rejoice always. There's no mitigating. There's no, there's no, there's no dividing this command. It is finally, brothers and sisters, remember, rejoice always. Now, Paul often wrote of joy and rejoicing. In his New Testament letters, he uses the word joy 22 times and 21 verses in the, in the English Standard Version translation. He, he uses the word rejoice 34 times in 29 verses of the ESV. Caro is the word. It means to enjoy a state of happiness and well-being, to rejoice, to be glad. Now, he spoke of rejoicing in many different ways. So sometimes he wrote that we should rejoice because of saving faith. And he, he wrote in, in, in Romans and in 2 Corinthians and in Galatians and Philippians and, and, and 1 Thessalonians of rejoicing both of hearing of, of salvation and the, and the good work and believers that he has heard of and rejoicing in his own salvation. He wrote in, in Romans and Colossians and Philippians about rejoicing in the context of suffering. In Romans he spoke about rejoicing in hope. In Romans and Corinthians, and 1 Corinthians and Philippians, he said we should rejoice with those who are rejoicing and weep with those who are weeping. In Romans chapter 15, he wrote about referencing Deuteronomy, that we are to be a people of rejoicing, even from an Old Testament perspective. In several letters, he, he talked about because of the good testimony of the saints, he rejoiced. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, he says we should rejoice in the truth. And then several times he just talked about rejoicing comes from the goodness of being in the presence of other believers. So just spending time with you ought to cause me to rejoice. You being with the fellowship ought to cause you to rejoice. Now let's be honest. From the perspective of the world, to give a command that you should rejoice all the time, no matter your particular situation, is a strange thing to say and a strange way to close this letter. If you just joined us today, you 
and, or maybe you don't remember the previous sermons from 2 Corinthians, let me remind you that Paul wrote from the very opening words of this letter to the very end of opposition that was in the church against him. So there were those in the church opposing Paul and working to discredit his ministry. It, is, uh, it was unclear if the church would receive Paul well or they, would re- or they would accept their leadership of the false teachers and reject Paul. Paul had just gotten done telling the church that if they did not confess, uh, repent of their sin, that when he was able to return to them, that his, re- that his returning would not be an occasion of rejoicing. It would be, I mean, he, the words he uses, I will not spare you. In other words, I'm going to be confronting your sin. So he's thinking that when he actually is able to return to the church, it's going to be a hard, unpleasant meeting. Those don't sound like reasons for rejoicing. And yet he says to the church, and I think he says to himself, rejoice. You see, the world's happiness is determined and controlled by circumstances. And so if this was a command based on the worldly perspective, there is no reason to rejoice. Maybe a reason to fret, maybe a reason to worry, Maybe a reason to be depressed or sad, but, but this is, from a world perspective, not a reason to rejoice. The pursuit of happiness has been the justification of much sin in our world. In fact, you, you'll hear people say that, that um, you should do, in fact, the mantra of our day is do whatever makes you happy. Now, friends, I'm going to tell you right now, that is a recipe unto destruction. Happiness is fleeting and oftentimes fickle. Happiness is something you chase after, but you never capture. Happiness is something you pursue, but, can never, uh, 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 but you can never preserve. If you're making life-altering decisions, you're breaking relationships and destroying things out of a pursuit of happiness, you will destroy things that are value and you'll have nothing to show for it. Friends, the joy of Christians is not determined by circumstances. When the power is out and you're hot in a, in a dark house, it's hard to be happy about those circumstances. But that's not what he means when he says rejoice. When you're being persecuted because of your faith, it's hard to be happy because of your circumstances. That's not what he means by rejoice. When disease comes and, and your, the vitality of your life is stolen, it's hard to be happy about your circumstances. And that's not what he means by rejoice. The joy of Christians is not determined by circumstances. It is supplied by our faith. Christians are joyful not because of temporary events or outcomes, but because of the sureness that God is working to fulfill his perfect will and accomplish his purposes no matter the circumstances. Philippians chapter 4, Paul writes, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your heart. Did you notice what he founds and grounds his, his command to rejoice in in that passage. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. 
He speaks about anxiousness. He says, listen, make your request be known to God. Find your peace. Find your hope in the sureness that God is sovereign over all things. Joy in the Lord is everlasting and eternal. Joy in the Lord is something you are given and can never lose. Joy in the Lord is something you enjoy, but it, and it never fades. Rejoice always. And rejoice always because of the assurance. Listen to me carefully. Because of the assurance that God will make all things right. The idiom, you've heard this, whistling past the graveyard means that you act as though you're relaxed, calm, and unafraid when in fact you are nervous, stressed, and afraid. Maybe the other idiom that might connect to this is fake it till you make it. (laughs) Just pretend like you're good when really you're not. When Paul begins his conclusion of his letter with finally brothers rejoice, he is not pretending to be upbeat or use the idiom or to use the idiom whistling past the graveyard. Listen to me carefully. Sometimes people give you really bad advice that sounds nice. So they'll say something like, well, you just need to be happy. You just need to to hold your chin up. And you're thinking, my world is falling apart. How can I hold my head up in this moment? Paul's not giving some nice pithy statement that that doesn't have any grounding in meaning. Oh, that has nothing to do with his command to rejoice. No, he's calling the church to rejoice, even knowing all that he said, all that he knows are issues and problems in the church. He says, finally, brothers, rejoice because Paul has faith that God will make all things right. And in that we can surely rejoice. He literally and without reservation means that regardless of all the difficult things that have been written about and all the difficult things that may still need to be dealt with in the church, the right attitude for the believers is to rejoice. Christians can rejoice in all situations and at all times because their confidence is in the work and the will of God. Things were not right in the Corinthian church. As Paul concludes this letter, he is not confident they're going to get right before he comes back. But there was a cause for rejoicing because God would preserve his church in the testimony of the gospel. There were some in the church who were lying and attempting to discredit Paul's ministry and the gospel he preached, but there was cause for rejoicing because God makes the truth known and is the only judgment that matters. Circumstances had hindered Paul, what Paul wanted to do and accomplish, but there was cause for rejoicing because God was sovereign over all things, and even when circumstances caused him disappointment, he knew there was grace. At times it seems as though wickedness is advancing, and sin is unopposed. But there is always cause for rejoicing because God will not be overcome and sin will have no victories. You may feel like there is nothing to rejoice about in your life. I mean, the argument may be happening right now in your mind and your heart about 
Pastor, you just don't know my particulars. There's nothing to rejoice about in my life. You may feel like there's nothing to rejoice about in your life, but only if you're looking at your present circumstances. Brother or sister, God is overcoming the world. God will make all things right. He will perfectly accomplish his will and fully establish his kingdom. Look up from your circumstances. Look to the glory of God. Know that he will make all things right and hear the command. Rejoice, brother. Rejoice, sister, always. That should be our attitude. And that's just the beginning. Because the big point of this passage is that the goal of the church, the purpose, the aim, the attention of the church must be on restoration. So look at the second half of verse 11. He says, aim for restoration. That's the command. And then you'll, I'll, I'll explain this in just a minute. The, the, the results of that are comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The focus and attention is always on restoration. The aim and goal of the fellowship for the fellowship of believers is the restoration of each member to a right relationship with God. Now the word that Paul uses here, it, it means to prepare, to complete, to restore. It's this idea that of the, the, the members of the community are summoned to instruct and help one another with a view of confirmation, though the, the success is finally the, and ultimately the work of God. It means to make someone completely adequate or sufficient for something, to, to, to furnish completely, to cause to be fully qualified or adequately qualified. Verse 11 in verse 12, reference desirable things that come from restoration. So in this passage, Paul talks about comforting one another, unity and agreement, unity and peace, joyful and welcoming greetings. And those are good things. And I've been in the ministry 20 plus years now. I've been in enough church conference meetings to know that sometimes that's not how I would describe church conference meetings. And yet it is a desirable thing that when we gather together as the, as the fellowship of believers, those who have been called out by, by, by Jesus to be the church and covered by his blood, redeemed by his blood, when we gather together, we ought to be comforting one another. We ought to be having a unity and agreement and a unity and peace with one another. We ought to greet one another with holy kisses or or uh, um, holy handshakes, maybe. And joyful and welcoming greetings. These things are good, but listen to me carefully. These things are, come only as a result of restoration. So before moving on to the results of restoration, you must understand what the church should be aiming for. And here, my friends, listen to me. Here is the order of this is of paramount importance. You've got to get the order right to understand this passage. So, here's the order. You must first be restored to right belief. 
I would put under that heading, right belief, right relationship with God. So you must first be restored to right, relation, right belief. And so when Paul talks about confronting sin in the church, when he talks about uh, uh, false teachers, all of that is we've got to deal with that. We've got to deal with sin. We've got to deal with disobedience. We've got to deal with broken relationships with the Lord. First, you must be restored to right belief. That's where the church's primary focus must be. And only then can you be restored to right practice. And only once you've been restored to right belief and then right practice will you be restored to right relationships. The church has too often attempted to seek things, these things in reverse order or out of order. So churches attempt to create a culture and atmosphere of harmony and unity without dealing with sin and disobedience. Many years ago, church I was pastoring uh, it, was, it was during a season of, of conflict. All conflict, all conflict has as its root disobedience and sin. And that was the root of this conflict as well. And um, there was a church member that I was speaking with who was very concerned with the conflict, but, but not with the sin that was causing it. What they were concerned with and were openly lamenting to me was that the disunity and the, the lack of peace within the fellowship. She said to me, I, I just wish everyone could get along. Now, that's a legitimate desire, is it not? And it's a good desire. I, I want you to get along with me. I want to get along with you. I want you all to get along with one another. That's, that's certainly worthy of a desire. But listen to me, if that's the only desire without first dealing with the, what is causing the disunity, is dysfunction and you'll never achieve it. Baptist churches love to talk about being a friendly church, but we ought to first talk about being a faithful church to the Word of God. Because you can be friendly and out of relationship with God and you've done no one any good. We can all decide to get along in disobedience. We may be at unity and at peace with one another, but we're not at unity and peace with God, and therefore we are not in fellowship. Getting along with one another is a desirable result, but it must not be a motivating goal of the church. Here's a little more closer to home. Christian parents often worry more about their children acting right than being right with God. Some parents find satisfaction in their children conforming to an external appearance of righteousness with little or no concern with their relationship with God. Obedience to the Word of God is a great blessing. But the goal of the church is that the brothers and sisters in the fellowship would be right with God, not just act right before men. Mamas and daddies, listen to me. Let your prayer life for your children be more about them being right with God than acting right before you. It'd be better to have some dysfunctional, unpleasant Thanksgiving meals and conversations at the house that might lead to them getting right with the Lord than them being, them being out of relationship with God, having pleasant Thanksgiving and Christmases for the next 20 years, and then dying and going to hell. Friends, true restoration and the goal of the church is to be restored to right belief. That's where we must start. 
Right belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right belief in the depravity of man. Right belief in the sufficiency of the sacrifice of Jesus. Right belief in the sovereignty of God. Right belief in the inerrancy of the word of God. Right belief in the hope of salvation. Right belief in the coming judgment and the hope of heaven. We must start there. Get right in, your, in what you believe, in what you, what you have faith in, in your relationship with the Lord. Right belief produces right practice. That's why you got to get these in, in correct order. Right practice is the life decisions of obedience and actions that flow out of your faith. What you believe about God and what you believe to be true will dictate how you live. Life-transforming obedience to the Word of God does not come from legalistic effort, but it only comes from gospel transformation. If you're acting right today because of some legalistic effort, you'll quit as soon as the motivation or the, the external force in your life is removed. Listen, we're watching that happen. We're, we, most of you are old enough to have witnessed the move of our culture from a church-influenced culture to a secular culture. Look around. There are some people who used to be faithful who are no longer faithful to the church. What's changed in their life? It's no longer advantageous for them to be a member of the church, and they've ghosted us. Because if the only reason why you're obeying the Lord is some external force, as soon as the external force is removed, you'll be gone. Life transforming obedience to the word of God doesn't come from legalistic effort. It only comes from gospel transformation. And that gospel transformation lasts no matter the circumstances around you. If you attempt to impose a way of living by external means, it is only temporary when a brother or sister is transformed by the gospel, their actions are transformed from the heart out by the power of the living God. And only when you've been restored to right belief that's produced right practice will you and the church experience restored relationships. I desire restored relationships. You should too. But we must we must pursue as a church that in the right order. First, seek to be restored to the Lord, right belief. Let that produce in us restoration of behavior, actions. And when those actions and those beliefs, relationship with the Lord are right, then our relationships with one another will be right. You see, because when we, have, uh, when we focus and give our attention to restoration, the result is peace. So read this passage with me in order. Paul says, verse 11, aim for restoration. <laughs> then all these other things come as a result of restoration. Comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love of peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss, and all the saints greet you. The result of restoration is peace. Only when the church is restored to right belief that produces right practice can the saints comfort one another. There is no comfort as long as there is sin in a brother or sister's life. If you're living in open rebellious sin, I have no word of comfort for you. In fact, the only word I can tell you is, is either if you're a believer, you're about to experience the, the discipline of God, and that's going to be horrible, or you're not a believer, you're under the wrath of God, and you may have a period of peace this side of heaven, but when the judgment comes, you will experience eternal damnation and the wrath of God. There's no comfort in either one of those. Only when the church is restored to right belief that, that produces right practice can the saints comfort one another. Only when the church is restored to right belief that produces right practice can the church agree. What do we agree about? 
Listen, I don't care what you paint the church. I don't care the color of the carpet, but we must agree on the word of God. You want to know a church that's not concerned about the rest, being restored to the word of God? It's a church that's fighting over things that don't matter. Because if you agree on the things that have eternal matter, you just don't have much energy for the things that don't matter. Confirming and affirming among one another the truth and the goodness of God's word and the commandments is what it means to agree. Only when the church is restored to right belief that produces right practice can the church live in peace. The peace that he's talking about here flows from, the, from being right with God and therefore right with one another. Now, there's a practical reality that all peace flows from the government that rules. When you live under good government, you enjoy sweet and good peace. The church's peace only come, the church has peace only when it is under the kingship and the rule of Christ. If the church is under any other uh, kingship, any other government, there will be no peace. When the church is in conflict, that conflict source is that there is rebellion against the kingship and the lordship of Jesus. The good results of church comfort, unity, harmony, and peace all flow from restoration to right belief. When we've been restored to the Lord, it produces peace. That then gives us the blessing. Oh, the good, sweet blessing of fellowship. When the church gives its attention to restoring one another to right belief, which produces brothers and sisters who are being restored to right practice, it produces the blessing of true fellowship. Verse 12 and 13 are more than just nice things to say. These, these verses point to the community of faith. Only when a brother or sister is in the right practice can fellowship be enjoyed. Now, I want to pause here for just a minute and, and recognize that the blessing of community is a big deal. There's a, there's a part of me that's, that's heartbroken watching how just culture changes. And one of the things that's not good, I spoke about it in the last two sermons, this is not good, is that the church has lost its understanding of what it means to be a member, what it means to be responsible to one another, church discipline. And so we're, we're, we have sort of moved into a season where the church sees what's happening here as a, a, something to be consumed, people to, be, to come and hear, but, not, but this is not a connection point that has any responsibility. That's not healthy. When you read this passage and Paul talks about living in peace and agreeing with one another and comforting one another, um, greeting one another with the holy kiss, all, the same, all those are connective ideas of a fellowship fellowshipping. Being in community with one another. Now that's the word our world uses, community. A recent opinion piece published just a week or two ago in the Washington Post broke my heart to read it. It was written by a man who had grown up in the church. In fact, his uncle and was a pastor. His father was some type of associate pastor in the church. 
He very much enjoyed the, the church that he grew up in, the community that it gave, and he, and he wrote very honestly about the goodness of being in a community. He talks about, you know, I, I grew up knowing people that were not just my age group and, and, and being impacted by their lives and by being around them. And, and he talked about the goodness of the, the sermon and how it helped him in, in, his, in his life and the activities for children. And, but he went on to say that he had turned away from the faith. He, he identified now as a nun, N-O-N-E, or nuns, N-O-N-E-S. So those who have no faith. And he was lamenting. He was, he was grieving the fact that as he had re rejected the faith, he had also lost the goodness of the community that came along with the faith. And he talked about in the article, oh, I wish we could recreate that. He said, no, I don't want the creeds and I don't want the teaching of the Bible or anything like that, but wouldn't it be nice if we could get together and maybe have somebody give a little talk about how we should live our lives and maybe sing some songs together and have some events for our children and maybe just teach some general things about being kind to one another and those sort of things and, and having fellowship meals. And, and, uh, and, and, and he said, I want to recreate that, 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 that community of faith that was lost when I rejected church. That article was articulating a reality that is a growing social and cultural crisis among us because of the loss of community. Now, because who you are, I mean, you're in a community of faith right now. You may not be keenly aware of this reality, but let me just kind of give you a glimpse of the, the world around us right now. Many today no longer have the community connections that you all have and their, their previous generations had. So with the collapse of cultural Christianity and the secularization of our culture, many children growing up today have grown up not in any connection at all to a church that they can speak of. Right now in Waycross, Georgia, if you're a teacher, you know this to be true. Many of the children in your classrooms, it's not, they're not even Christmas and Easter only folks. They've never been in the church. If you say John 3.16, they think you're talking about wrestling, not Jesus. So we've lost the connection, the community of church. With the mobility of our society, many people no longer live near family or childhood friends, so they don't have their kinfolks around them. With the advent of remote work, many people no longer even have the superficial community of their work friends. They're spending their entire day at home. And add to these losses, uh, 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 add to these um, losses the, the technological isolation of social media and, and the antisocial behavior of engaging with cell phones while in public. Many people today find themselves with zero community and utterly alone even when they're out in public. Now, I want to tell you, if you're here today, you went to Sunday school this morning and maybe you know the people on the pew beside you, you're enjoying the blessing of fellowship and it is good. It is a good thing to enjoy the blessings and the benefit of church fellowship. It is a good thing to desire that others come and experience the blessings and benefits of the church fellowship. So sometimes because you know it's good, you invite others, oh, would you come? Come be a part of our church. 
Come to my Sunday school class. Listen, some of our Sunday school classes absolutely amaze me at just the care they give to one another. The most humbling ministry that's happening right now in our, in our church is happening at the Sunday school level. Behind the scenes, not necessarily out in public, but beautiful acts of service and kindness and grace, well beyond what is expected. Beautiful stuff. So, so there's a part of all of us that when we meet lost neighbors and friends, like, oh, I wish you'd come and know how good that is. I'm so thankful that my children grew up in this church, and so they know people that are beyond their age group, and they've seen a witness and a testimony of people in, in all the strata of demographics here that have walked faithfully with the Lord. They've seen me pray with them, and they, they, they've heard stories of difficult situations. I'm so thankful for the blessing of that that's been in my own family. It's a good thing to desire that others come and experience the blessings and benefits of the church fellowship, but, but listen to me carefully. The blessings of God cannot be experienced outside obedience to his word. I'm going to say it again because it's important. The blessings of God cannot be experienced outside of obedience to his word. The author of that opinion piece in the Washington Post ends with, Oh, I wish I could create a church for nuns, but I don't think anybody would attend. And as you read that article, you go, Yeah, but what would be the point? What's the point of that? There is no point. It's attempting to recreate the blessings without the obedience, and it never works. Brothers and sisters, be restored to a right relationship with Jesus first. Then you will enjoy the blessings of being restored to his church. And when the church is walking in faithfulness, when you are walking in faithfulness, you will reap the blessings of the fellowship. Now, one other thing here very last verse. Paul reminds the church. Now, this is a blessing, kind of like a God bless you, but a blessing he ends his letter with. I want to read it. It's very Trinitarian when you read it. He says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. He ends this letter with a Trinitarian blessing. And I just want to walk through these three things to bless you as we conclude this series. For those who are saved by the blood of Jesus, you have received the grace of Jesus Christ. All those who have been forgiven of their sins and made right with God through Christ have, have, have received that only through Jesus and have only Jesus to boast in. The grace of Jesus Christ. In Jesus, there is great boasting. He loved you while you were still in rebellion. His blood covers over all of your sin. His imputed righteousness makes you holy and acceptable before a righteous and holy God. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fear relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Oh, brother and sister, because of the blood of Jesus, you have received the grace of Christ. Because of the love of God.
John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. To the Ephesians, Paul wrote, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and the kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. The cross, friends, of Jesus is the greatest testimony of the love of God. Hearing the gospel preached and having the opportunity to believe in faith unto salvation is the beautiful testimony of God's love to you. You have opportunity to receive the grace of God today. That is the testimony of God's love to you. The church is declared and called the beloved of God. If you know Jesus today, you have received the grace of Jesus Christ because of the blood, because of the love of God. And through that, you have fellowship of the Holy Spirit. The hope of the gospel is to be right with God and spend eternity with God. First John chapter one says, if we say we have fellowship with him, we have, uh, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light and he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. The promised future for Christians is that our fellowship with God now in spirit will one day be in his presence. Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that. Uh, if it were not so, I would have told you that. Uh, I, I, but I, I would not have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. The blessing of faith is the grace of Jesus because of the love of God that gives you the fellowship of the Holy Spirit now and the hope of presence in the days to come. Thirty-eight years ago this month, in 1985, lifeguards for the city of New Orleans, Louisiana, gathered for an end-of-the-year pool party. Now, that's nothing spectacular, and it really doesn't require any reporting in the news if it was just that, a party. The city in those days closed its 14 pools at the end of July. And the party that would happen in August was the end of the season annual event that the lifeguards enjoyed. On this particular year, 1985, the New Orleans lifeguards were very excited because they were celebrating something that had not happened. They had not had a single drowning incident 
all summer. It had, it had never been, and this is heartbreaking, it had never been, they'd never had a year where they had not had a drowning incident. And in 1985, in the 14 pools in the city of New Orleans, there had not been a drowning incident. And so the pools were closed. The season was over. The big hurrah that the annual party was really amped up that year because they were celebrating that no one had died. They had, they had really been good. Maybe their training had, had, had been more efficient and effective, and, but they had, they had not had any incident. No one had drowned, and they were very excited. Of the 200 people that attended the party that year, 100 of them were trained lifeguards for the city of New Orleans. Because it was a pool party, four of the 100 trained lifeguards were on duty and responsible for guarding the swimmers and the pool. The party went well and everyone had a great time until the four on-duty lifeguards began to clear the, part, the, the pool at the end of the party. And when they began to clear the pool at the end of the party, they discovered that there was a body of a 31-year-old man at the bottom of the deep end. The man was fully clothed and had not been swimming with the other party guests. The lifeguards retrieved him out of the pool. They administered first aid, but they were not able to revive him, and he died. An autopsy later determined that the cause of death was drowning. And the question has to be asked, how can a drowning accident happen among 100 lifeguards? Would not swimming with 100 trained lifeguards be the safest way to swim? You would certainly think so. My guess is that in 1985 at that party, no one was really concerned with anyone drowning because how could you? Half of the guests were trained lifeguards. It would be impossible to drown at a party like that. However, even if there were a thousand lifeguards present, if those thousand lifeguards were not focused on the work of guarding the lives of swimmers, they would not and could not be effective. And likewise, when the church seeks after things other than faithfulness to the Word of God, when the church understands its purpose beyond proclaiming the gospel, or when the church values worldly things over a right relationship with Jesus, like a hundred lifeguards at a party not lifeguarding, the church will be ineffective and no longer useful for the kingdom. Brothers and sisters, with a joy-filled attitude, keep your attention on the goal of being restored to a living and faithful walking in obedience to the Word of God. Have it be your aim. Have it be your heart's desire, your singular focus to be restored to and obedient to, living out the Word of God. And as you do, but only as you do, find rest in the grace, in the love, and in the fellowship that comes only by being in Christ.
Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. Have as your purpose, your aim, restoration. Enjoy the comforts and blessings of fellowship that comes from that. And may the grace of Christ, may the love of God, may the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you. Thank you for listening to All for the Kingdom, a weekly podcast of my preaching ministry. For more sermons, blog posts, and other related content, go to bensmithsenior.org. That's bensmithsr.org. I am the pastor of Central Baptist Church in Waycross, Georgia. I would love for you to join us this coming Sunday at 201 Ava Street here in Waycross. Our morning services begin at 1030 a.m. For more information about Central Baptist, go to cbcwaycross.org. Again, thank you for listening, and until the Lord returns, let us live each moment all for the King and all for the Kingdom.